Well, we've been journeying through the book of Proverbs the last several weeks. And it's this short little pithy book that is often under, overlooked, right, and underestimated, and at times rather confusing. Dan last week got to speak of rock badgers and grasshoppers. This week, I get to speak of the things God hates. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate that. Before we get into our key passage, I really want us to think how many times have we made the statement, man, I hate that. I hate that. Chad Negley, he's speaking in the contemporary side. Chad is our, one of our main worship leaders for the contemporary uh, side, and he's preaching this weekend. And, he, and he, as he and I were collaborating on this message, he had came up with a great idea. Let's do a little crowdsourcing. So he went on his Facebook page and he posted, tell me and answer this sentence for me. I hate blank because blank. I hate blank because blank. Here are a few of our responses that we crowdsourced. I hate inconsiderate cell phone users because it's rude to other people around them. Can I get an amen? <laughs> oh, I didn't know it was gonna be so. I hate cleaning bathrooms because having three boys, I just leave it like that, all right? I hate cancer because it takes our loved ones too soon. I hate pornography, human trafficking, and sexual exploitation because they wreck absolute devastation. I hate those mini chocolate-covered cream puffs because I love them so much this person shared. A few of my own favorites. I hate those books that they say there's a hidden image and you got to hold it like this far away and, and cross your eyes and stand on one leg. I can never see them and I feel like a fool trying to see them. I hate not being able to protect my daughter from pain in her life. And I absolutely hate when the church, capital C, does not act and sound and look like Jesus. I absolutely hate that. We all do this, don't we? We all have those things that we hate. Now, many of you right now, I know you're thinking, I hate listening to things people hate on Sunday morning. Well, that may be true. But I don't know about you, but I find the opening verse of our key passage this morning very sobering. Proverbs 6, 16, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. And if we're, if we're honest, we know that the things we hate ranges from, the reasons range from the petty and the self-serving to the more serious and universal and noble. I mean, who does not hate the destruction of cancer? An addiction. My own dad was an alcoholic. I know the havoc that can wreck on a family. I hate it. Now, in light of this startling passage, I would like us to consider the things that God hates for these reasons. God hates those things that compromises our integrity, compromises the integrity of our lives, because it weakens God's life in ours. He hates those things. 
that compromises the integrity of our lives because it weakens his life in ours. Integrity, what comes to mind when you hear that? Perhaps that's one of these many ways that integrity can be defined. Having strong moral principles, state of being whole and undivided, being unified, unimpaired, sound in construction, internal consistency, a lack of corruption. If something has integrity, it's true to form, able to do what it's designed to do. Integrity in our life is like this tower. It's strong, it's sure, it's solid. It's able to hold up under the stresses that are put on it. Laying this over our lives, laying this over our lives as followers of Jesus, we have integrity when we are true to Christ. When we live in the process of being Christ, of Christ being formed in us, as the Apostle Paul shares in Galatians. So now coming back to our key passage, with these ideas in mind, we're going to consider directly these seven things that God hates. And as we do, remember, God hates those things that compromises our integrity because it weakens God's life in ours. God hates haughty eyes. A haughty spirit or haughty eyes means that we look down upon others in a condescending way, scornfully, with disdain, with contempt, arrogantly. We place ourselves above others. That's haughtiness. And if we're above them, it's hard to serve them and hold them up when they need it. As followers of Christ, we are called to live in humility before God and before others, to power under rather than power over, to serve rather than to be served. We follow in the steps of the one who washed the feet of his disciples. That is the example we are set. That is the one we are called to become like. Pride goes before destruction, Proverbs 16 says. A haughty spirit before the fall. When we live with haughty eyes, we weaken our integrity because we are no longer living humbly before God. And God hates it. God hates a lying tongue. God is truth. Therefore, God hates lying. Not because it violates some rule, but because it violates the very nature and character of God himself. Think about why we lie. Why do we lie? We want to avoid something that's going to harm us, we, we perceive. We want to have a one-up on someone else, so we tell a little white lie to look better than we are, to appear more than we are, so we don't look diminished in someone else. We'll just, we'll just fudge our resume. Ultimately, when we lie, we are violating, again, the very nature of the one whom we are being formed in the image of. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is not some, again, abstract concept 
It's a person. It's Jesus. Jesus is truth. Proverbs 26, 28 clarifies this. A lying tongue hates those it hurts. And a flattering mouth works ruin. When we lie, we weaken our integrity because we no longer are living in the truth of who God is. And God hates it. God hates hands that shed innocent blood. God is the creator, the sustainer, the giver of life. Jesus says in John 10 and John 14, I have come to give life and life to the fullest. One of my favorite all-time verses. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So when we kill, we are placing ourselves in God's place as the steward of life and death. And I know what you're thinking, Eric. I'm really not even close to killing somebody. Not really. I get that. But then we turn to Matthew, Matthew 5, and we are awoken. We are sobered up, so to speak, before these very powerful and startling words of Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't just look on the internal, external, our actions. He looks here, as we know, our heart. And here's what Jesus says and reminds us in Matthew 5. You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger in the fires of hell. Anger, folks, chokes life out of relationships, and it diminishes the Spirit of God in us. When we shed innocent blood, we weaken our integrity because we are no longer cultivating life in and with God. And God hates it. God hates a heart that devises wicked schemes. Now, many times when you see the word heart in Scripture, you have to pause, because many times that word heart is a very full word. Our hearts in Hebrew thought are the center of each person's being and intellect. They're our spiritual center, the spiritual center of ourselves. Our heart. I want to give my heart to God. God wants to transform my heart. The very center of who we are. So a heart that devises wicked schemes is a heart that has been calloused. A heart that has grown hard and cold to the ways of God because it keeps rubbing against the ways of God. Thereby, there's a hardness that forms around it. There's a corruption that has happened to this person. God's desire, plan, and hope is to transform our hearts to be like his, 
to move us from a callous, hard heart to hearts as flesh, as he calls it. And we see this very clearly in Ezekiel 11. I will give them an undivided heart, and I would put a new spirit in them. I would remove from their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people, and I will be their God. Can you sense the eagerness, the desire, the love, the care that God so longs for us, of our hearts to be just like his? We are invited into this process. We are encouraged into this process, but God wants us to come willingly and openly and humbly. We can choose otherwise. In fact, read Hebrews 3. We don't have time to go on it this morning, but read Hebrews 3 sometime. And you see this ongoing tension of the nation of Israel, how God kept saying, you are such a hard-hearted people. And then they would come back, and that tension, it's a powerful passage, convicting passage, Hebrews 3. C.S. Lewis has these great lines from his book, The Great Divorce. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss out. Those who seek find, those who knock, it is opened. When we have a heart that devises wicked schemes, we weaken our integrity because we are no longer offer because we are no longer offering our hearts to God to be transformed by his grace. And God hates it. God hates that the feet that are quick to rush into evil. Now in context here, you you can almost sense when you continually read this, this impulsiveness, this lack of patience fueled by greed and self-centered desire. These feet that are rushing into evil, they want to take advantage. They want anything and everything at any cost, and they want what you have as well. And they don't care of the consequences. They will lie, cheat, and steal. They're so eager to have and, and to build themselves up at the expense of anything and everyone. And I love the contrast of this frantic, impatient rushing about self-centeredness to what we feel and are embraced with from Psalm 130. Let's just wash over us right now. I love, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. There's this, can you sense it, this releasing, this tension. It's not me, it's God. I want all that is God's. I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. And just for effect, I think the psalmist just kind of slows us down even more. Everyone, more than watchmen wait for the morning. 
Ah, can you feel it? The rest, the peace, seeking the discerning presence of God himself in your midst, the releasing of your selfishness, the releasing of trying to have your old way, your own way, the releasing of evil to receive God's goodness. When we are quick to rush into evil, we weaken our integrity because we are no longer waiting patiently to discern with God. And God absolutely hates it. God hates a false witness who pours out lies. We all know that in court, court of law, if you perjure yourself, you're in deep trouble. You will be fined and potentially thrown into prison. Why? Because it breaks down the very fabric of our society. It degrades it. God is about building rich, deep, fulfilling community. So if you are bearing false witness, if you are someone who is just pouring out lies, not only are you not dealing in truth, but you are then taking those lies and causing harm to others, thereby destroying community. And you're violating the very communal nature of the triune God. Now, I, I believe there's another way we can bear false witness. And it's also in our spheres of influence with our loved ones, with our good friends, we don't, when we don't speak the hard truth that needs to be spoken, I think it's false witness. I would argue that. We don't love them enough to tell them they are going a pathway that leads to destruction. When I was a pastor in Wisconsin, we called this being lovingly intrusive in each other's lives. I love you enough to intrude lovingly, keyword there, don't, don't miss that, to lovingly intrude into your life. And by me being part of this community, I invite, in fact, more than invite, I know I need, may not always admit it, but I know I need you to be lovingly intrusive into my life. Because there is things I'm blind to. And I need you to speak the truth in love. Proverbs 14 states, souls are saved by truthful witness. When you're lovingly intrusive in other people's lives, souls are saved when that's done in love and betrayed by the spread of lies. When we bear false witness, we weaken our integrity because we are no longer loving God through each other in community. And God hates it. God hates a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Notice this person stirs up conflict, showing that it's done with intent a malice, a purpose to harm. There are a few things that can turn someone off to the church than internal church conflicts. 
and yet we know they're all too common. Gandhi's words actually have always struck a chord with me. Gandhi said one time, I like your Christ. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. I do not like your Christians because they are so unlike your Christ. So sad. What is the number one reason over and over again missionaries leave the field? I have a number of missionary friends all across the world and they testify that this is absolutely, unfortunately, still true. Internal conflict between other missionaries. Not political strife, not lack of funding, not lack of calling, but internal strife. It's no wonder Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer in John 17, these, these powerful words. I pray also for those, meaning us, those who will believe in me through their message, their message, the disciples' message, the first apostles. That's everyone here. If we're here, followers of Jesus, it's because those folks were faithful in sharing that message. I pray, Father, that all of them may be one, just as you are in me and I am in you. And you just let that sit. Jesus is praying that we would be one together as God the Son is one with God the Father. Mm. May they also be in us so that he wants that unity to happen in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Taking that apart the other way, if we do not have that unity, if there is conflict in our community, it's more reasons for the world not to believe that God is amongst us. And that is tragic. That is tragic. When we stir up conflict in the community, we weaken our integrity because it diminishes, it absolutely diminishes our faith to the world. And God hates it. This is what we get when our integrity is weakened over time. This is what we're promised in Proverbs 6, right before our key passage I read a little bit earlier. Therefore, disaster will overtake them. Therefore, disaster will overtake those who live into the things God hates. It would overtake them in an instant. They will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. So how do we protect ourselves from this toppling from happening? Well, that's easy, right? Don't do the things God hates. Haskins, that's not so bright. Obvious. True. That's definitely going to help. But I want us to focus on how can we then shore up our integrity, just not by not doing what God hates, but how do we add to and strengthen our integrity, our tower of our lives before God and before others. 
Now, one thing you're going to discover when you read through Proverbs is that Solomon says the same thing in multiple ways. And as you read through Proverbs, you're going to be like, I kind of heard this before, but now I, I get another perspective of it. And absolutely right, you have heard this before, you can get another perspective of it. I'm calling following, since Solomon is one of the wisest men that ever lived, I'm following his example. And I'm taking what Dan shared week one for his three closing points. Because I want us to put it in the context, how do we shore up the integrity of our lives? And we're looking at what Dan shared week one, and I'm just going to turn it ever so slightly for building up integrity because it fits beautifully. First of all, to do that, we need to humble ourselves further. How many of the things God hates we would overcome, we would avoid by simple humility in our life? By not giving in to pride, by confessing that we take things in our own hands, by turning to God for help and for others versus grabbing it ourselves and saying, I'm going to rearrange my life my way because God has taken way too long. King David, a father of Solomon, shows us how to live this out by simply asking God for help. He gives us this wonderful prayer that leads, that stems from a rich, rich humility. Search me, God. And again, if you're really praying this prayer, it is not for the faint of heart. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. If we truly pray that prayer on a regular basis, humbling ourselves, the result would be when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. Praying the prayer that David gives us, we will gain insight into our souls. We will be, maybe begin to understand, why do I get angry when this happens? Well, it stems from this way, way long ago. And I've never dealt with it. I've just stuffed it. Now, I know, a lot easier said than done. And I know, if you're like me, you tend to look on the shiny things of your life. And those dull, scary things, you kind of go, yeah, yeah, we're good. Kind of like, what things? No, I'm good. That's why we need the second point that we heard earlier. We need to process life with others. Because we will absolutely avoid those things in our life that bring us the greatest amount of pain and need the greatest amount of healing, I might add. So this is why we process life with others. All world-class athletes have a what? A coach, right? And what does the coach do? It's another set of eyes to encourage, to help shape, to point the direction, to give hope, to help them stay true, to stay on task, to ask penetrating questions. For us today, I really want us to ask ourselves, how's the integrity of our lives? To what degree, to what degree, because I think there can be shadows of these, degrees of these, seven things God hates in our life, if we're honest. To what degree are those things in our life individually, and perhaps even, dare I say, in our church life? We can't do this alone. We need partners for the journey. They help us things, see things that we can't 
or unwilling to look at. I cannot say it enough. I encourage you, be part of a small group. If small group right now doesn't fit into your, your, your stage of life, that's fine. How about a spiritual director? I meet with a spiritual director every month. And he's, I know I go in there, he's going to ask me those hard questions because I need it. Because I absolutely will hide them otherwise. I don't want this to happen to my life and ministry, to my family. Thereby, I humble myself and invite community in to be lovingly intrusive. A couple of weeks ago, my spiritual director's name is Dave. And I go, Dave, you need to ask me the 10%. I just want you to say, what's the last 10% you're not sharing with me, Eric? Well, our, our next session, the next month, he comes up to me, he goes, Eric, what's the 10%? I'm like, right now? At the beginning? He's like, yeah, let's deal with what's really, what's really going on. I hated it, but I needed it. And in the end, oh man, I loved it. Third thing, building, shoring up that tower of your life, your integrity. Yoke yourself with Jesus. And again, to yoke yourself with Jesus means to become a student, to learn from, to journey with. And in light of our integrity, a, a building a life that is, that is sound and true and whole in the way of Christ, we have to truly consider the question. You have to truly consider this question head on. Do you really believe to the core of your being that Jesus knows what he's talking about? You have to answer that truly. Well, Jesus is kind of good for Sunday morning and for kids, but when I get in my cubicle or on the trading floor Monday morning, all bets are off. Forget it. If you do believe Jesus knows what he's talking about, I ask you, how are you arranging your life around his and not Jesus's life in yours? Two very different things. A lot of times we organize our life and then Jesus just gets tucked in there versus Jesus is the hub of my life and the source of my life and everything radiates from that relationship first and foremost. Imagine, imagine how our lives would be transformed if we truly lived a humble life of integrity in community, being transformed by the wise reality of Jesus himself. Imagine the freedom our souls and lives would have if we stopped taking things into our own hands, rebuilding our life the way we saw fit, but truly rely upon God's transforming grace. Imagine the intimate strength our marriages would have and the ability to withstand the storms and stresses of life. Imagine the relational depth we would cultivate with our children and our friends and our church body. Imagine. I leave you with the always transforming wisdom of Christ. Here's what Jesus tells you and I. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine 
and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are and who you are in our lives. And Lord, we thank you for the never-ending invitation to come to you, to be built by you, to be transformed by you, so that we truly may have integrity from the depths of our souls to the ends of our hands, so that we may be able to stand tall and proud and give you praise, so that others may be drawn into this life that you so freely give. We love you. And again, we thank you for your word. Amen.